0: tricky thing is is saying that you you know you can't do all pro bono work and make a business out of it but i think that there are ways that people have been successful in finding new clients out of starting with a pro bono business model or or you know a portion of their business models pro bono that turns into a, a robust thriving social impact business
1: business of architecture episode 179 Hello, I'm Enoch Sears, and this is the Podcast for Architects, where you'll discover tips, strategies, and secrets for running a profitable and impactful architecture practice. I'd like to invite you to discover how to double your architecture firm income and create your dream practice of freedom and impact by downloading my free four-part architecture firm profit map. As a podcast listener, you can get instant access by going to freearchitectgift.com. Today's guest is Jeffrey Pastva. He's a project architect at J. Davis Architects based out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Also, he's highly active in his local and actually national AI organization. He's the editor-in-chief of YAF Connection, which is the Young Architects Forum publication. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Jeff, welcome to the Business of Architecture.
0: Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Anik.
1: Yeah, it is, it is good to have you on here. And uh, you are very actively involved in the uh, your a in the AI, both a national level and I know your local chapter. Uh, you're a licensed, registered architect out there in Pennsylvania, so you got a lot of stuff going on. And uh, let's talk about that. Sure.
0: Where, where would you like to start?
1: Well, tell me. You know, one thing I see here. You went to Syracuse University. Tell me about your experience there. Uh, you know it's all, I always like to hear how other architecture schools structure their programs and sort of just a little a little vignette of what it was like to go there.
0: yeah, it was it's it's one of those things where you know, the blessing and the curse of being in a northeast environment where there were not a lot of distractions so we you know it was easier to to be in studio because uh, we didn't have all the nice weather that's maybe some of a southern school would have or even a kind of a coastal community um, but, you know, we, it was a great program, still is a great program. And when I was in there, you know, as a impressionable young freshman, it was nice to have uh, a program that was looking to blend art and practicality. So we learned a lot about uh, the theory of architecture, uh, but still w- was rooted in structurals, structure and building systems and some of the other things that I think now uh, is becoming more and more on trend Particularly with energy efficiency and really understanding the building science of a building, uh, so we didn't get into that totally uh, when I was a freshman, starting in 2001. Uh, but it, it definitely was something that piqued our interest, and we started looking at, you know, a lot of great sites around Syracuse in particular, uh, and 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 then it kind of grew to to be within New York, uh, and then we we kind of had some sites all kind of across the state. It was nice to be kind of grounded locally um that we could visit sites pretty easily
1: yeah no i know what you're saying and i definitely identify with the uh the cold weather and being you know having to stay in studio because I, w- I was up in ithaca so you know we would go to syracuse every now and then that's where the closest nice mall was <laughs> if we wanted to go shopping <laughs> that's
0: liverpool uh carousel mall
1: yep yep there you go yeah is uh is richard Rose was he there when you were at uh, syracuse
0: he was. He was. He started around my, I think, second or third year, and a number of my classmates had him as a as a studio professor, uh, but I never uh, had the pleasure.
1: Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Fantastic. Well, let's let's hop into your work with the AIA. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You you are pretty involved there. What? Had, tell me about your involvement uh, in the American Institute of Architects.
0: So it it started. Almost immediately after I got licensed, you know, something that was on my radar. I was a little active as an associate, but I became much more engaged uh, around 2001. When I, after I'd gotten licensed, uh, I immediately started giving back in the form of teaching a a local study session uh, for for taking the AREs. Uh, A colleague of mine had actually taught me. uh, Her name is Denise Thompson, she's actually the current president of AI Philadelphia. And we kind of started just growing this program, really finding things that engage young architects and other emerging professionals uh, first to find licensure. And then as we kind of started finding a lot of synergies between our work, uh, we started growing into just running programs that we thought would benefit, uh, again, young architects, either whether they're starting in their own firm or bringing other communities in, such as, uh, say, like a young interior designer group or young engineer group. Or, or um, Young Involved Philadelphia, which is more of a civic minded group. So, we try to go ahead get to stay inside the built environment, but also create connections outside of it. Uh, so, that's kind of like how I really got my start back in 2011. We started doing more programs in 2012, and then I, I took over the chair of what's called the, the Young Architects Forum local component in 2013. Uh, and then if I can, if I keep going, like that kind of spawned onto like the next thing, uh, if you know, for young architect leadership, uh, where the, the AIA Young Arch- architects form has a national uh, representation broken into the 19 AIA regions. Uh, Pennsylvania is a single state region. And I was the, what's called the young architect, regional representative, young architect, regional director that represented all the interests throughout Pennsylvania, um, in this national structure. I did that for a little bit concurrently while running, uh, not running, but I I was doing uh, some editorial work for YF Connection, uh, which upon the position being open in 2015, I was named to uh, take over as the editor. Uh, So since then, I've been providing creative and kind of editorial direction on articles that really are... Kind of geared towards young, not all the young architects, but emerging professionals as a whole. And we have a close synergy with the College of Fellows, so we really try to blend in all these different member groups to highlight under kind of recognize young professionals who are in high performing roles and give them an outlet to find have their voice be heard on on multiple different platforms.
1: What kind of resources are available to uh, young architects through the Young Architects Forum?
0: So, and there, I mean, there are a number, and then we've, in the last two or three years, we've really ramped up the efforts on kind of archiving or becoming the clearinghouse of what we call knowledge resources. Um, and that can be, you know, the white paper is, is kind of the, the standard when you think of like a best practice resource, but we're trying to make it more of like events or programs, uh, particularly leadership programs or even how we wanna, we're trying to catalog different AIA sessions. Um, This past year, as a group, YF had 10 accepted sessions to the the convention um, out of 18 that we submitted. So we're really trying to look around the AIA, find things that are of interest, and then as we move towards creating content that can be delivered at either at the convention or through a, a leadership program. Um, a couple of young architects outside of like the, the realm of the YF started the Christopher Kelly Leadership Development Program in D.C. Uh, as that program grew, YF got more involved as a way of, of spreading that message. Uh, so this year, uh, for the first time, that specific program is going to spawn a, a Denver subchapter uh, that, again, this, the resource was archived as part of the YAF and then kind of exported so other local components can pick up and, and use one of these best practices across the country.
1: What what benefits have you found in your own career volunteering in the AIA? I mean, I
0: I think I've seen a lot of benefit and I guess one of the things is, is networking. It sounds a little cliche maybe, but it's, it's something that you kind of have to make, you know, what you want of it. Uh, so networking, I don't necessarily just network for networking sake, but I, I a lot of times I go in with a goal. Of, if I know someone's going to be there that I've always wanted to talk to, I try to find out how I get in front of them, how I keep them engaged, and maybe even maybe find out how they can introduce me to someone else. And because it's through the AIA, I feel as an architect, it's more accessible. There's always going to be a common ground that you can, again, get in front of someone, find something to talk about. And then, again, if you want to get introduced to someone else within that community, it's very easy to kind of hop those those lily pads, uh, where if you just kind of had a cold call into a, a ULI event or some other professional organization where it might be more business development oriented it can be harder to kind of get in front of someone to, to talk to them. But the EAA kind of at the start has really helped me, again, expand my network, meet new people. And then through that, I, I feel like I can expand my knowledge base by if I want to find out more about resilience or another trending topic, I get the chance to meet that person Uh Sometimes at the local, but it also helps at, at the, the national level as well. If you go to a convention and again you start working your network to find someone else who knows about a topic that you might not, um, there's always someone to, that you can get introduced to.
1: And how have you found that those skills have transferred over into your professional career?
0: So the networking part is is a, a more a definitely natural one. Again, if I can get if I can keep someone's interest. Uh, whether it's just through talking or small talk, um, but also like to be a a source of knowledge for them. I think that you know, it's always a two way street that I'm not just going to find someone to just ask them questions. I want to be able to offer them something up by getting more comfortable doing that. I think I can go network in other organizations, uh, and but the AIA was my starting point. Uh, another thing is particularly in my role as. As editor and running a lot of interviews for connection, I've kind of had to really do the grind to make it work. So from an entrepreneurial standpoint, if I have to make a product every two months and deliver something that I think is high quality, I have to always make sure that my time management is is key. I have to make sure that um, I have a skill set in writing and opening kind of cold call email or, or whether it's a cold call over the phone that I have a pitch that is compelling to make someone dedicate at least a conversation to, if not writing an article, uh, cause I've had that in the past where someone who I've not known uh, might, m- might not even have a connection to um, I've been able to pitch them that why they should write or spend uh, some time uh, to my magazine. Um, so Taking that, again, into professional life, I think anytime you have to compel someone or pitch something to anybody else who's outside your circle, I think that that's kind of a valuable skill set that uh, I've, I've learned primarily through
1: the AIA. Fantastic. Tell me how one of those pitches might go. But pretend like I'm someone who's a potential interviewer. That'd be fun to see your, your approach. Or I'm a professional I- interviewee or potential guest poster.
0: So again, a lot of a lot of them I will say do do come through email. So I have the time to kind of look at it, write it over. But a lot of times it's it's a simple introduction and it's an introduction that includes a little bit of my credential without being too in your face about it. You know, I'll just say that I am the editor of YF Connection. I'll explain it a little bit that it, you know, the audience is is geared towards young architects. Uh, we have the backing of the AIA, we get distributed through the AIA. Um so If you are, you know, if you write for us, then you will have an audience of at least uh, 25,000 young architect members within our base. Um, And then the next thing beyond that is that if I already have some people lined up, I can say that you will be in, you know, kind of the company of these other experts who have already said, yes, I'd like to be a part of it um, to make it seem like it, again, that they are not just someone that I'm reaching for that they, you know, should be alongside and potentially benefit from being in the company of, of other people that are are worth reading.
1: Yeah. That's a excellent example of how to reach out to someone with their interest in mind and kind of cover all the bases of what they would be thinking about. Thanks for sharing that.
0: Absolutely. And it's, it's been, it's been a definitely a learning experience. Uh, I think I've gotten a lot better at it. Um, and even the pitch of when I do get them on the phone, sometimes I still have to talk through, again, what it is that, I, you know, why, again, you're, you're giving me your time for an interview. Um, and again, I'll, I'll use the same thing that we're really geared towards emerging professionals and, and trying to make sure that if give them a resource that they're looking for. So if, if someone is an expert in the field, not only will you have an audience with them, but you might be teaching them how to be better at resilience. I keep coming back to that because that was like one of those topics that I actually had to educate myself on. Uh, We we were lucky to have a couple of resilience leaders uh, within our circle. Um, But it was like, you know, I had, I really had to educate myself about every topic that I was going after so I could feel more prepared for, for any conversation. So again, I'm, I'm not wasting their time by asking them too simple of questions I really want to make sure that people are, are challenged uh, when I'm interviewing them.
1: Yep. So, uh, what what interview questions should I be asking you? <laughs> um,
0: I mean, there's, there, I guess, like even just opinions about certain topics. I mean, it, it could be it could be opinions about you know what's your opinion about licensure. What's your opinion about? Um, the state of building codes, which are, you know, it, it can be all kinds of like, there are a number of different issues that are, are out there. Uh, they just have to be things that I think about a lot. Um, you know, design competitions. I mean, there's a lot, definitely a lot of hot button things you could probably talk about that everybody has an opinion on that. I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm feeding you a question that you're going to ask right back to me, but that's well, kind of uh, the.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what I would like to know is what, what things do you think about? Are those kind of the, some of the top hot buttons on your mind?
0: They're not specifically, I think, you know, I get really geared up when I set my editorial calendar. So as those months roll around, that's the thing I'm thinking about. And I'm always trying to take cues from or inspiration from everything that I do. So this past issue, you know, we talked about state of practice and it's like, well, what are our young architects doing currently that are pushing the practice forward? Ah, uh, which sounds broad, but when you start looking into like the small things such as international practice, then you start really thinking about what does it, you know what does it mean to be a leader overseas or to be uh, whether you're practicing domestically but still having a, a a site overseas, or what does it mean to actually move overseas in order to do that? So those aren't things I necessarily have opinions about but they're things that I think about and those are the things that I think other young architects are thinking about Um, but one of the things that came out of it that really I guess kind of got me thinking more was we did a an interview with with AI Hong Kong and the and they were very very interested in trying to connect more with mainland U.S. and others throughout our network so it, it just really started thinking about you know how do we connect young architects, emerging professionals in other countries because AI has a kind of a robust international chapter network that has its own challenges by being remote. Like all the chapters that are considered international are lumped into their own chapter. So you have AI Europe, which is a sub chapter, and AI and some of the and AI China or AI Shanghai. But they all kind of come together as, as the same region. So, you know, what are the challenges there and, and how can we not only support them, but also make sure that they feel included in the rest of the AIA um, beyond language barriers? There's distance, time. Uh, they don't have the same access to networking opportunities. So how can we make sure that they still feel like they're, they're part of the, the same network getting the same services? feel connected to the same peer groups as we do. Mm
1: -hmm. And how do you do that?
0: So the conversations just started, but I I think that connection uh, was an outlet. You know, we just have, it's more of a conversation to start. Um, But then we did have them say, well, we want to run some study sessions. So then we start tapping into, you know, what is it that we have in our arsenal that we can send in terms of a, a kind of a knowledge resource? So if you want to start a study group, and you can't do things all in, in person, you know, here's, here's the best practices of something that another chapter actually, like I did in Philadelphia, we started a remote study session where for a couple of years out of Philadelphia, we were covering the entire state and actually beyond when we sent out, I mean, it was simple as a go-to link, a go-to meeting link to say, we're going to broadcast our study sessions, you know, feel free to ask questions. Um, not that they couldn't think of that, but just kind of giving that extra idea, they started thinking. Well, we have a, mostly a remote base. That's what makes more sense than having an in-person, you know, PowerPoint presentation or something like that. Uh, so it's it's a lot of listening, it's a lot of seeing what they need, and then once we kind of figure out what resources that we already have that we can give to them, uh, I think that's step one. Um, the next step would be to try to find common events that they might actually be funded or have the ability to go to. Um, So next year, you know, we hope to see them maybe in at the convention. Um, I don't think that they're going to go to say a grassroots or some of the other smaller localized AIA you know, sponsored events. But if we can then get everybody together at convention, that becomes something that can be, that uh, is a meeting point and face to face time that we might not otherwise get the chance to do.
1: So it's about, yeah, connecting people in that fashion. I'm curious, Jeff, I want to transition the conversation here a little bit in terms of your role as the editor. Um, I imagine it gives you a nice broad perspective of the profession of architecture, of maybe some new innovative things that are happening. Now, of course, this is the Business of Architecture podcast, and we focus primarily on the practice side of what we do as architects. You know, it's my huge belief that as architects learn how to have better business success as they learn how to manage their practices better and, and gain vital business skills that that's just going to help architects all over the world make a bigger impact. so a question for you is does anything come to mind in terms of interesting innovative things or trends that you're seeing in the actual practice of architecture?
0: well one of the, the one of the articles we ran that, again, I didn't necessarily know about when we started doing it, but I did more research was, you know, the, the social impact design business model. And, and one of the things is that it's, it's so nebulous and there aren't any straight paths, but there are people out there uh, like uh, Maya Sharfi who, who recently did an interview with us of creative agency about trying to find that path, you know, and, and trying to find a, a way to make money doing it. Um, simply by providing case studies on someone who's been successful. So they might point you to someone like Catherine Darnstadt out of uh, Chicago and Leighton Design on how they've been able to create some sort of at least a revenue stream so that you're not only relying on very small commissions as your only source of income. So that is one of those things that to me has been very interesting to hear how people have been able to turn their passions into a business that they wouldn't normally be able to again because of kind of like the smaller commissions when you're doing things that are like the fifty thousand dollar construction budget you know what is a design fee on that a thousand dollars or you know it almost falls in the pro bono category so um which which also leads you to finding ways of doing pro bono work that could lead to bigger commissions now the tricky thing is is saying that you you know you can't do all pro bono work and make a business out of it but i think that there are ways that people have been successful in finding new clients out of starting with a pro bono business model or or you know a portion of their business models pro bono that turns into a, a robust thriving social impact business
1: So you mentioned a couple firms that are doing interesting things that you know of. Uh, Agency, you mentioned, Catherine Darnstadt up in uh, Chicago, Layton Design. Anyone else that we should be aware of?
0: Well, some of my memory is going to be things that have happened recently. So we we did do an interview with with Lucas Gray at a Propel studio. Uh, Very interesting. Lucas is actually involved in the kind of the AIA associate structure uh, but I've known him for a couple of years. He he runs the blog Talkitect, and you know, as of a couple of years ago, we'll say two years ago or so, he entered the Shred Ventures business mo- business model competition, um, mm-hmm. and I think he said he didn't win, but because he was one of the first in, they were able to start a relationship, and he became an investment anyway. Um, they, there was a synergy that became that came out of it. And they now currently have an investment from Sherrod Ventures Group. So what's, interest, what's what I find really interesting about that model is that it's one of the first that I know of or have come across where there is some sort of venture capital that is actually going into an architecture firm at the startup level, um, kind of with the promise of future returns. Um We've heard, you know, mergers and acquisitions have, have happened throughout the years, but there have been very little kind of startup, angel investor, venture capital firms out there. So to me, that was very interesting to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, let see if another, I mean, the resilience movement is another one that is really interesting. I think that they're all still trying to figure it out, but my colleague Ilya Azaroff has really become an expert in resilience on all on all levels and he's now consulting with FEMA and, and other federal government agencies in, in addition to being kind of the expert with post sandy initiatives in the New York New Jersey Connecticut regions so by being like that expert kind of as one of the first in uh, and in a in a trending uh, what do, I guess it just kind of a, a a trending business model or, or a, a trend that isn't going to go away, um, and being again on the ground floor of that, uh, he's really made something about his his expertise that that really hasn't existed in the last say ten years. I'm sure there's always been people talking about resilience, but now there's people who are practicing resilience measures. So well, that's what is the business. resilience
1: movement, Jeff?
0: So when I think of resilience, I think of someone who's, whether it's doing disaster relief, that's kind of the first kind of connotation, that hurricane or tornado or an earthquake happens, and they're the first responders from the architectural standpoint. They go in and try to help, whether it's build temporary shelters or find ways to rebuild after something has been destroyed. Uh, Then the other side is more of the, you know, what are the proactive measures we can do to protect our cities? Um, So something like Rebuild by Design, which is a competition run in New York City that said, you know, how do we make sure that we prevent uh, the next Sandy that comes through New York City? How do we how are we prepared for it beforehand? And some measures include, you know, whether it's raising structures above uh, the floodplain line. Um, or the you know, the design floodplain,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and that's something that actually has built into his business model. Where you know I've seen Ilya release videos of Ilya going around Long Island uh, and finding kind of the most at risk neighborhoods, kind of like along the coast, and implementing a raise, like a house raise, where they go in and they jack up the foundation, puts basically put the house on stilts. And they've written a best practices uh, that says, you know, what you can and can't do in that kind of first level, such as, you know, even though you you raise the house, you're really not supposed to then put, say, mechanical equipment in there, because if a flood happens, it's going to destroy anything in there. Uh, so he's he's been one of those leaders in in making sure that this is how you raise, this is how you prepare. Um, he even goes to, so far as to find funding because there are a lot of insurance agencies who have a vested interest in making sure that property is, is protected pro, uh, proactively from um, natural disaster. Uh, so he might even be the one to help find you funding to get your house raised, and then he can you know, make a business model out of doing that.
1: Fascinating. Uh, Jeff, just to just to finish up here, I'd like to ask you, what is one resource, whether it's a podcast, a book, uh, something that's inspiring you right now in your life?
0: Well, I mean, one of the podcasts that it's it's not anything new, um, but it's it's I guess it's it's hard for me to admit that it's actually fairly new to me, but it's still the ninety nine percent invisible podcast. That you know, there are so many literally invisible things that are designed that. You know, I can, I, I take some some uh, trips down to, to you know visit various building sites, and it's just the thing that I listen to and actually try to get inspired before I go to a site. Uh, even though I might not necessarily learn anything that I can use at the building site. It's something that I think of design in a different way, and that's even coming from an architect who tries to think about things differently. I'm still able to, to take inspiration from what I hear and. Whether it's it's notice it or think about how I can improve upon something uh, that's something that i'm I've currently really gotten into.
1: Fantastic. Well, that's a great resource. and hopefully our listeners are aware of that podcast. Uh, I know Roman Mars, I think, is the host, and he does an excellent job. so I'll highly highly recommend that. Thanks for sharing that, Jeff. and uh, thank you for yeah. being on the business of Architecture podcast today. It's always interesting to hear what. Uh, architects are doing around the world to get engaged, uh, to raise the value of design and your service. Definitely don't want it to go unnoticed.
0: Well, I appreciate you having me and, you know, looking forward to, to hearing this.
1: Okay. Are you actually going to listen to your own podcast interview?
0: I, I, I will. I mean, I like to hear what I sound like sometimes or, yeah. you know, make sure that I, I made the right, I mean, I, not that I would have to redo it, but I, it, it i would like to make sure that i i made the right points
1: very good well we will definitely let you know when it goes live jeff thank you once again for joining us and have a wonderful evening right now it's uh it's late afternoon here and it's evening time there so i'm sure you have better things to do than continue to be on another podcast
0: again thank you for having me and have a good night and weekend all right talk to you later bye-bye
1: bye and that is a wrap thank you for listening today If you're looking for more time, freedom, impact, and income as an architect, get instant access to my free four-part architect profit map by visiting freearchitectgift.com. The sponsor for today's show is ArchReach, the client relationship management tool built specifically for architects. If you want to systematize your marketing and business development, ArchReach will help you do it. Visit archreach.com to learn more. on the show by my guests do not represent those of the host and i make no representation promise guarantee pledge warranty contract bond or commitment except to help you conquer the world